you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Alark Russell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is not actually finished its festival run. We're playing three more festivals, which is exciting. We're playing Beloit International next week, I think, at this point, and then we're going to be at Phoenix International. I can finally announce that in April, part of their horror sci-fi, you know, festival. And then Miami Sci-Fi Film Festival, also, I think, in March or April. So three more. It's amazing. It does, the, the fun never stops. But the movie will be out for everyone to see later in 2022 as well. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who's made two features, Bread and Butter, Speed of Life, currently on Showtime, Speed of Life. I'm currently in development on about five more films. I'm a distribution consultant. I do sales. And I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome TV literary agent Jeff Greenberg on the show to tell us exactly what a TV lit agent does what he looks for in a client or project, and what it takes to be a successful writer-director in television. After that, Liz and I talk about an article from Filmmaker Magazine from the editor behind Don't Look Up, which is a lot of fun if you haven't seen it, and we answer a listener question. But before all that, Liz, how are you doing? I'm good. As we talked about right before we recorded, we were in a mad dash to get Paul McCartney tickets this morning, so that was the priority of the day. Other than that, I've been looking at VFX updates for my visual effects supervisor. And I mean, what do you call someone who's a supervisor, but also does all the work? The VFX department of one. I've been looking at all her samples and it looks beautiful. I'm very excited about the gross stuff that we're going to show people on screen. And what else? I don't know. Just, just working, working the life. What, what, that's not an expression. How are you? What's your, what are you up to? <laughs> working the life. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, people, the the those seriousness which these concert tickets were to Liz, I, I honestly felt like there was something wrong with her son, or <laughs> there was like some emergency, like Sean was being consulted. It was like this huge, like really serious. She's like, like okay, shake your things, I'll be right back. Like don't go anywhere, or like like you just hold on one second, and then she's like talking very seriously, muted off. I'm like, what is happening? And then all this was for Paul McCartney tickets my goodness <laughs> but <important>. anyways <laughs> i appreciate the seriousness of things because i get really serious about like you know little things too that aren't important <laughs> i can understand i'm doing well i'm on the this is the eve of delivery <gasps> i have all the stems all the versions i had to do two different versions for both my distributors one wanted it formatted in one way and one wanted it formatted it in another way and so by the two different formattings, I had to do two different sets of stems. So I'm like redoing the stems from my uh, sound mixer to like get them the right way that they want for the delivery. And then I've got like the trailer stems done. I did the stems for the trailer, which was like making your own stems out of the trailer that you edit. Was It's like, oh, so, so much work. And like now I'm on my final stage, which I'll finish by the end of the day today, which is getting all the special features done, all the special features. So I'm doing... Yes, behind, I got the deleted scenes all lined up. I'm going to do commentary for the deleted scenes like they do, you know, in DVDs these days. And then I'm going to do these featurettes that I have, the first teaser trailer that I made to, to raise money for the movie, and like just get all that stuff sent off to them and put my hands up in the air and be like, okay, it's in your court now. You have all the paperwork, you have everything. You don't need anything else from me. And I'm going to go on vacation tomorrow for, for the weekend. I'm doing a very long weekend from Wednesday to Monday. So it's like getting this all done. I'm, I'm off work. It's like 
basically just going to be like a huge celebration of like being done with the alternate until press time comes. So yeah, it's very exciting. I remember I did special features for Bread and Butter DVD. My editor, Bruce Navani, did it for us. And we got permission to include the audition videos, which I think is really cool. Not to add more work to your plate, but (laughs) that can be something. Yeah. Well, so there was no audition videos for the leads because I just booked them. I just knew that they were the ones and I didn't need them to audition. Because I'd worked with, like, basically the teaser trailer is the audition for the lead who played, you know, the two versions of Chris. And then for, for Ed, I had worked with him like three or four times. So I was just like, the audition that we had was we just had coffee and I told him about the movie and I gauged his interest and he was very interested. So, you know, I was like, okay, I know you can do it. I know you're interested. Like, yeah, he wanted to be all in. He wanted to work with me closely. He didn't care about getting paid for rehearsals and all this stuff. And yeah, that was like, that commitment was enough. So it was it was really cool. But I do have one for Johnny Gilligan, who's, you know, also a very, very talented writer. Yeah. And plays, you know, the third lead, I guess. Not really a lead. He's like the next biggest character to besides the lead. Supporting in the movie. cast. Supporting cast, exactly. He's the and at the end of the credits, you know. You know, if there's such a thing. But yeah. So we could put his on there. But I don't know. I feel like it doesn't really make sense unless you had more than one. If you just did yeah. one, it seems a little weird. But yeah, what else is going on? I'm reading lots of scripts. I've read how many now? Three? Four? Since I started this? Hmm. It's pretty, it's pretty fun. I, one, I, I got 20 pages in and I had to stop. And so I, uh, I, and I wrote the, the writer an email of why I stopped and what needs to change and why this can't be read by me anymore. <laughs> and then I moved on, you know, and I feel like it was helpful. Like it was like, like stuff they could like see. And then they could go through the whole script and fix it, you know, and make it better. But yeah, it was just like, you know, I think at some point you 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 can't waste your time on something that's like, that there's no point to read it because it it needs so much work. I just like the expression, can't be read by me anymore. Like, I just think that's really (laughs) inappropriate. It just can't be read by me anymore. (laughs) You know, it's like you try so hard. Like, I was like, at 10 pages, I was like, okay, I could stop here, but let me give it 10 more pages. Like, just, and then like. The thing that sucks is like, it's kind of interesting. Like it has a really good opening like sequence and the concept is, is really intriguing and it does some fun stuff. It's just like, it's like all the, the basic first time writer problems that you have and like, you know, lack of character description, lack of any kind of sense of tone or style or feeling or, or like detail about the characters. It's just like, it's very like, and they go here, and then they do this, and then this person calls, and well, this thing happens. Are they happens. planning to direct it, this person? No. Okay. Because I'm, like, totally cool if it's missing a bunch of those details, if that person is directing it, or if I'm coming on to direct it, and, and I can add those flourishes. But yeah, if you're writing it to sell it or pitch it to a bunch of people, that's going to be very difficult, right? Yeah, but I think, like, if you're, if you're reading a script and you're trying to, like, understand, like, what the characters are and wrap your head around... Like what's happening, like you want the writer to do that work for you. You don't want to have to be forced to like write the movie for them, basically, because that's what essentially what you're doing. Well, if the actions are not apparent, like if their character's not clear from the actions that they take within the script, then yes. Well, like uh, it's basically like like the characters in the movie they're they're like like chess pieces that just do the things that they have to do for the plot to move forward. Oh. But the reasons why they do the things that they do or who they are is not clear. Oh, well, that's a, you know, that sounds like a huge problem. Yeah. It's like, 
you know, he's eating breakfast. He looks up from his breakfast and he talks to this person and then they says, oh, what about this? It's, it's just like, I don't know. Anyways, right. these work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's an interesting idea that like, yeah, because like basically I read this thing and I can imagine like, oh, this character could be this kind of person. This could be his backstory. This could be why he's doing this thing. This could be why he, why he took this job. This could be why he has this reaction to this. But like none of that stuff is in there. It's like all for me to create. But then that's basically like, I think that is the job of the director. But then I think I'm taking a step into the writer's hat when you're doing yeah. too much of that, which I think sometimes is fun. But it's like, I'm not trying to co-write this movie with this guy. So, you know, <laughs> it's right. like. Well, and earlier on, I sent a version of a script that I was working on with a co-writer to someone else, and they would ask those questions that I'm sure a bunch of people have received already, which is like, how do we know? Like it, or, or stop editorializing in the character descriptions, or it'll, it'll have like a little too much personality in the script. Mm. And a lot of people brush back against that too. But again, if I'm planning on directing it, or if we're not pitching it around, like what's wrong with a little bit of editorializing, like, and she's thinking this, and he mm. doesn't like X. It's like, I'm okay with too much information, too. Yeah. It's a fine line. But reps can sniff that out. Like, agents and managers can sniff that stuff out, and it, it reads as amateur, I think. I think the, the art of, like, script writing is to be able to do that without doing that, right? Yeah. Like, so, like, you, your description, the things your characters do, the way things play out, like, feeds you all the information without you having to, to, to write it in, you know? Yeah. So you can, like, get a sense of, like, what this character is thinking and why they're doing what they're doing. And, like, the, 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 you know, I've actually, I think I've been pretty lucky because most of the scripts I've read have been really good. Hmm. And I feel like those, they all do that. Like, they all kind of give you a sense of, like, the motivations for the characters without telling you the motivation for the character. This character is motivated by this. It's like you get it through the conversation, you know, yeah. or through the, what happens in the movie. So anyways, I'm, the one I'm reading right now is, is pretty good. It's a Western, you know, very interested to see how it plays out. But yeah, I'm, I keep on like, I'm trying to find like low budget movies to read or scripts to read. And like everything I'm finding is like, you know, a lot of what people will write are like big budget stuff. Cause that's like what gets them agents and managers and yeah, those are the you know, whatever. Yeah. So if anybody out there has a really awesome sci-fi thriller or horror thriller or sci-fi horror or something that you think I would like, I would love to read it. Send it to me. And don't send it to Liz. Just kidding. You can send it to Liz, too. Don't send it to me. I, as, <laughs> I will be very open about how I do not want to read anyone's script. Do you remember that <laughs> article? It was like 10 years ago. And it was like, no, I will not read your fucking scripts. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, I do remember that. I feel for that person. I get that. I don't want to read any <laughs> Unless they're coming to me and saying, I want you to direct and here's why. I don't want to read your script. No. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the undertone of what I'm asking is I do want to direct you, if it's your movie if it's good. But I'll read it regardless. Yeah. <laughs> because it's also just growth for me to read. But yeah. But I was gonna say, like, but you know, if you don't like reading scripts, like how did you find your five that you had, you got yourself attached to? Was it like because people were actively seeking a director to attach? And then you raised your hand and you're like, Yeah, I, I want to be attached to a movie, let me read it. Well, one of them written by Natalie Higdon, it's called Hold Me Now. She wrote a tweet that was like, I have an eighties rom com and I wanna make it. And for me, like, okay. 99% of scripts I will not read. But if it's an 80s Rob Cobb, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, ma'am, I will read that. And the other one, the guy was, was so darn sweet about the whole thing. Like I said, I was looking for a horror script. 
And he engaged in a conversation with me. And then he was so polite and respectful. I was like, oh, I'd like to check out your script. Maybe it's the way people communicate the ask Mm. that bothers me more than the actual activity. Because there's this, I don't like to read scripts to give people feedback. How about that? I just hate Mm. that. Mm -hmm. And my feedback is always, are you happy? Then it's great. That's my feedback. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, it's because like, basically in my situation, some of them are asking for feedback. Some of them are just like, hey, I have a script. You want to read it? You know, and it's like, and they're more like they've got notes from a lot of the people on these scripts. Usually what one woman already had it in development with a production company. So I was like, do you want notes? And she's like, no, I don't want your notes because I already have like a ass ton of notes from this production company. I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. You know, and so I'm not actually giving notes on all these scripts I'm reading. I'm just reading them. Like kind of like summarizing my thoughts briefly, asking if they want detailed notes and then moving on, you know? Yeah. So it's it's not as time consuming as like, yeah, writing notes on every page. And I, I used to read scripts and like, as I would read, I would write notes on like as I would go. On and that pages. takes forever. I mean, my God. So I don't do that anymore. Now I just read them. And then like, if the writer wants me to go back and like give specific notes, I will, but. It's not like I'm not offering that up as a thing. You know, it's like only if you actually really want them, will I do it for you? You know, and if you're a friend anyways. So speaking of friends, (laughs) you can be our friend. If you go to support our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast, we have now season six and most of season five of the show behind the paywall. These feature episodes with Amber Seeley, Carolyn Shropshire, who apparently loves us, which is great. She's the editor of The Old Guard on Netflix. Joe Bob Briggs and many, many more amazing, amazing guests. So if you want to, you know, listen to these awesome episodes and you're this is like the first time you're hearing our show, you can become a patron today for $1.99 and you can have access to those episodes. Also, make sure to check out Jambox.io, a new royalty-free and SFX company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. They offer customized plans to fit your needs, and they focus on working with composers on an exclusive basis, so you won't hear these tracks popping up on any other platform. So you can use our promo code MMIH when signing up to get a 20% discount. So check them out today. And without any more blither-brather or mess-ups from me, here's our chat with Jeff Greenberg. Hi, Jeff. Normally, we ask a filmmaker for their elevator pitch for their film. But we're asking for the elevator pitch for you, if, if you are willing to share that. Yeah, of course. I moved to L.A. as just a kid that loved TV after law school and worked my way up. So the idea to help a number of writers and to get shows on the air and to live their dream of being a TV writer really appeals to me. So my spiel is that I get to try to help make dreams come true, which is sort of a dream job. Because I I probably wanted to be a TV writer when I was a kid. And then when I got my first job at WMA and read my first script in the mail or my script I didn't even think was that good, I knew, man, this is a lot better than I can write. So I decided to spend my time helping others be successful TV writers instead of myself, which is great because it actually allows me to put more eggs in the basket. So if TV shifts the zeitgeist of American culture and if it really changes the way people think and hearts and minds and all that, having, you know, a bunch of eggs in the basket of changing things and having an imprint on American society is better than just, you know, just me trying to do it. 
And so from signing someone to something being sold, what's the shortest length of time and the longest length of time you've been involved in, in that? I mean, so that depends on a ton of things. And when you say something being sold, like I think of someone being staffed in a writer's room, which is generally where you want to start in television as being more important than selling something because you're actually on a trajectory. When someone comes to me and says like, I just want to sell this pilot. Sometimes you tell them, great, you need a lotto ticket, not an agent. Like everyone wants to, everyone has a pilot they want to sell. But if you want to build a career and if you want to get in the ecosystem and work your way through it, that's why you need an agent. And that's why you need representation to help guide you through that process and to set up the opportunities to make that a reality. So the shortest time that someone's been staffed from me signing them, you know, I would say a few weeks sometimes. And I had a writer that I met and he was one of the smartest people I'd ever met. And I said, I will sign you, but it's going to take around 18 months to two years to get your first writing job in a room. And 18 months on the dot, he got his first job. And yeah, I mean, he did a ton of meetings, but that's what it takes. Why did you say 18 months specifically? Like, why is it that length of time? I needed two development cycles to introduce him to people. And I just knew what people were looking for at any given time. And, you know, if, if people are looking for, if female writers in comedy are hot and he's a guy writer, I was taking that into the equation of whether he was going to be able to staff quicker or a little slower. Nice. Yeah. So you basically already answered our next question, but I wanted to push you on your bio because... Because none of it's true? No, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) I guess just because... So Ulrich and I are writer-directors, and I like to think that there's a writer-director in all of us. And hearing you say that you you read a script thinking that it was much better than anything you can do... It Well, it just kind of like upset me a little bit because I was thinking like of you having this dream and the dream changed. And I just want to see if you still write is what I'm curious about. I don't still write. Oh, I off now I give my ideas to writers and they sell them and I am happy. The script often is not what I would have written, but that's totally fine. Yeah, I don't, I don't write. I gave an idea to a writer recently. I was like, maybe I should write it. This showrunner that I was talking to. And he said, you don't have the discipline to sit down and write every day. You know, he's probably, he's probably right. I, I like being in an office and moving things forward in a way that just writing on a computer every, I mean, I've never kept a journal, all the things mm-hmm. that I've wanted to do. Yeah, I don't think I would have the discipline to write. I, and this is not to say you're not an incredibly press, impressive person. I just, want, I just want like, if there was a dream that changed, I just want to, you know, wanted to make sure you've sought that out to its full capacity. That's all. Yeah, I... I haven't written since college in a class and I'm uh, I haven't written a script since a class in college and I'm okay with that. Yeah. I hate writing. You, so whatever. I get it. <laughs> but you've read like 1000 or 1 million scripts, so. Exactly. And they're not all better than the ones that I wrote, but <laughs> most of them are. Can you talk a little bit about development cycle? I was just a term that I I don't know anything about TV. Like I am like very much in the indie feature world. What is a development cycle for TV? So the good news for you is for the development cycle and the seasons aren't as prevalent as they were four or five years ago with streamers develop. Everyone's developing off cycle now and the term off cycle. So it used to be a cycle. There was a time when you would pitch. There was a time when they would develop the script. Then they would get the first drafts in. Then everyone would go make pilots at the same time. And they would pick up pilots in May. And then we would all staff the pilots. 
from April until June, and then the writers' rooms would start going. Now it happens all year long. There certainly are times when networks and streamers are hungrier. There's just times of the year that people feel like they want to buy, and you sort of try to keep a sense of that. But now everyone's sort of on their own timeline. So you can tell like one network is waiting for a big show to drop, or one network just had a change of uh, regime. So they're looking for new stuff. It could be a whole number of things. There's definitely a lot more factors than there used to be when it was just the time of the year. So I wanted to really dig into like what packaging is and how you define it and like what that process is like. Great. Because at packaging, it, it can mean almost anything. And so many people often don't know what it means. Packaging can literally mean adding any element to a script. So aside from me taking out a script from a writer, totally blind, that would be, and just sending it out to the buyers, that would be an unpackaged project, I guess. Packaging it means sending it to producers, sending it to talent. But like the first step of a package is generally, if the writer's not very well known, getting a producer on board because you want to get someone other than me that likes the script who has a name. Not that I have a name, but someone that people know. So yeah, you send it to 10 producers and you see what happens. And that is the first step packaging. Then that producer might say, let's add a piece of talent or let's add a director or let's add another producer or let's bring it into the networks now, just the three of us. So that's packaging. Any adding elements to a script are packaging. So it's like the feature world in that, you know, you're building the team and you're trying to make it a more attractive commodity. Yeah, (laughs) I was trying to avoid the word. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about how you know a project is right for a producer? Is it just through their other work that they've created or is there some sort of like, I don't know, are there networking events where you get to know them and you're like, well, they seem like a person who likes thriller. Go on. That's a great question. You know, back in the pre-COVID days, they would come into our offices every year and tell us about what they were developing and what they wanted mm-hmm. to develop and any open writing assignments they had. Certainly, you know what successes they've had. So that's helpful. But on the phone now, right, uh, producers tell me what they're looking for and you get a feel for it. I was making up a producer list five minutes before this for a writer. We're taking out a script. It's almost intuitive, but there's also, you know, so-and-so has a kid, uh, you know, that's in a wheelchair. So you're going to want to, this is a wheelchair project. Like, you know, there is a bunch of that knowing like who, knowing who might be more receptive to what than others. So this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's just like, so I understand as a, as a filmmaker, the road to an independent movie, right? But like so many people come to me now with like TV scripts and pilots and whatever. That's something I completely do not understand. Like, is there a world where people can make like a pilot, like someone would make a feature and then get that sold? Or is that just not the way that TV shows get born? Like, is there a, a different process that you have to follow in order for your TV to actually, TV show to actually get greenlit? It's probably not a good use of money for someone to do that. If someone wants to spend the $2 million to make a pilot or $3 million, call (laughs) me up and I got a bunch of scripts that you can shoot. There's a process. I mean, we used to say movies were art and TV's business. Like it's the television business. It is a real business. There is independent television. There are independent studios, but it's not like the feature business where, you know, anyone with a million, I used to say, that everyone in TV was so nice because we deal with each other all the time. And in features, you just need someone to give you a million bucks and then they don't have to be your friend anymore because there's someone else that will give you a million bucks next year. (laughs) That's not the way it works in TV. Like everyone shows up 
to the event every year. And so everybody's really great to work with and friendly. And we also, you know, we were the, we were the kids at the, at the nerdy table when all the feature people were, you know, banging their chest 15 years ago when I started at the agencies. So, Wait, we're, we're the cool people? The indie feature people are cool? <laughs> I don't believe it. So wait, let's, let's go into that a little bit more. So the idea of independently producing your own pilot is a bad idea because like, is it just because no network wants to pick something up that's already fully formed and they want to be a part of the formation or yeah, what else is gonna, there? Where are you going to air it? Like if you have a fully shot feature, take it out and people need content to post up or they've got a slot in their release dates. I don't know. But for television, yeah, the con- I mean, when you shoot pilots, like the contracts for the writers, uh, for the actors are like seven years, you know, they're, they're locking people in. So the idea that they would pick up something and be really excited about it without any of the development process. I mean, it can happen. South Park was a greeting card before, you know, that took off. But it's the lotto tickets. It's not the business. So, so talk to us about the, what is the proper process? Like, if you are that, that writer who thinks they have, like, the genius pilot with, like, you know, a perfect, this can be the perfect show, like, what should that writer be doing to get that show made? They should be doing what I do for a living, like, getting it to a producer, someone with a name that can godfather their project into the network to say, so they can't trust the writer who's never done anything other than wrote, wrote this amazing script with millions of dollars to build the show, right? It wouldn't be smart of them to, but they can trust Dan Jinks or some other famous producer that's really good at their job. So they, you need a producer to bless it and then the producer can bring it in and that's how shows get made. But I guess just to follow up on that, like is, is the best, like should the writer be like trying to find an agent to connect them to that producer? Oh, like, absolutely. is that like the easiest like way in or like, oh, absolutely. That's I don't know. I'm still living. I introduce scripts to producers and I, right. that's my, that, that's our trade. I, I have lunch. I used to have lunch most days with producers. Now it's less because of COVID, but uh, we're starting to do in-person lunches again. And they say, what do you have that you like? And I send them scripts after lunch and then we talk about it. Yeah, no. Introducing talented work to the, indus- to the industry is what, we, is what agents do. So yes, they should go look for an agent and that agent will send out their material. That's their agent's job. Because but then comes a catch-22 though, right? Because like you can't actually so- solicit your material to an agent that's because right. that's not allowed. That question. That's so, right. <laughs> so I have clients that refer me material all the time. And that's how I get almost all of my clients. Pretty, I mean, writers should know writers, especially in TV. It's a group business. It's not someone just sitting always alone in a room writing fe- a feature. It's a communal effort. So I'm guessing a lot of the writers in television have writers groups. And yeah. So you are so clients. a reference. Yes. Yeah. Most of my client referrals come from executives or writers or other writers that I rep or showrunners who I don't rep that I just am close with. If there's an exception to that, are you looking at the, you know, I, I actually don't know the TV equivalent. I'm so sorry that I like feel okay. so siloed, but like the Nichols, you know, winners, are you looking at competition winners outside of your circle or does that not even play into finding a client? Not as much in TV. I know it's a no. big thing in features. It's there's too many awards that no one's heard of in feature into television to make it matter. Hmm. Now, maybe there's younger agents that do look at those lists. And certainly like if they're on the blacklist and they don't have representation, like, well, and if that's a, yeah, who wouldn't want to read a black top blacklist script, but uh, 
in general, it's referrals from people that I know. Yeah. I don't really think it's that big of a deal in the future world either. I mean, people put a lot of stock yeah. into contests and everything, but I feel like the, the actual value they have is not as great as what some people they, they have. So once you package a project and it's sold, like, are you done and off to the next one? Or do you stick around with a project and kind of work on it? you know, while it's, you know, being developed and then, you know, turned into a show and, and everything? Or is it just like, oh, package sold, done, off to the next? It's a good question. A lot of my clients do use me as a sounding board before, like, they send it into the network. Hey, we read this over and am I missing anything? Help me see the, uh, the forest, the trees a little bit. But in general, I don't want to give any big notes that might be contradictory to the buyer. So once something's bought, their notes sort of rule. I might give like general tone references or, you know, but I don't want, I mean, I certainly don't want to upset the apple cart, but I also want to be helpful. And if the writer has a problem with something in a story, I want, and if I think I can help work it out, I'm down to do that and should be used. Or if I think a joke's a joke in the last draft was funnier, I'll tell them to re-add that joke or something, or something's confusing. And in terms of your personal, your career evolution, so you like, can you talk a little bit about how you've attuned and kind of crafted your, your voice as a reader and as an agent? Was it through assistant work and then rising up in the ranks? And like, what are the actual tasks that helped you become the solid agent that you are right now? Oh, absolutely. I got to work for amazing people coming up. I worked for Aaron Kaplan and Mark Corman, and they're both fantastic agents. And I took you know, the best parts of them and tried to continue that in my practice. They both rep amazing clients. I would read them on the desks and I would, I would read some of the best writers in the business. And I, I got to expect that that's the level of writing that I want to represent. And then the longer I was doing it, I realized writers' rooms, I say this a lot, are 20-week dinner parties. So who do you want to invite to a dinner party? Well, one, your friends. And then when you, don't have, when you look around the dinner party and it looks like all, your, all the people that are in your friend group and you want to have more people in the dinner party, you call me up and you say, Hey, all my friends are around my age. Do you have anyone uh, older that could be my friend? I offer you those people. So I try to keep my list good dinner party guests, people that are really interesting, smart people. Being a good writer isn't enough in television. In features, I think you can be boring and be a good feature writer because you get to just like write the script and hand it in and you don't have to be in a room with 15 people and making them laugh for 20 weeks. But in TV, you have to be a good dinner party guest. That means no assholes. And so what makes like the best dinner party guest, for instance, like, like how do like your clients get into the room and stay in the room? Like what are some of the things that you've seen that have worked in the past for your, for your clients? I mean, I think that's a question for a writer in the room, like, but it's balancing. It's like any dinner party, balancing talking too much without talking too little. It's like any first date. It's I mean, I also tell writers that general, and there aren't that many general meetings anymore that it, that's not as much as it used to be, but like any meeting is a first date and the goal is a second date. Like you want, you want to tell enough interesting stories about yourself that someone wants to be your friend. And because and if an executive is meeting one writer a week for 50 weeks, that's still 50 writers they're meeting at it during the year. So the, the idea that they're going to like pluck you out and think of, remember you for the assignment, you know, 48 writers later is tough. So when you're meeting a prospective client for the first time, you're also kind of judging character in addition to their, their talent. Oh, yeah. If they, it's not just the writing. If they don't have good stories about themselves, 
good, you know, if they don't have good stories about themselves, yeah, I, I or like interesting, interesting perspectives, anything that will make me want to spend more time with them and not less. I shouldn't want to leave assigning me. Like I should want to be like, man, I could talk to you all day. That's the dream. And when you meet that person, then I go, oh my God, I want to rep you because I want to introduce you to all my friends. Like that's, you know, that's the job is introduce is making connections. And if I introduce someone amazing to someone else, that's amazing. They're going to be really happy. If I introduce duds, they're not going to want to take my call anymore. They're not going to want to take my next meeting. Yeah. Well, does social media play into it? I just like, I follow a lot of female comedians on social media. Like, and, and then I find out like Ashley Nicole Black, and then I find out that they're writers. Like, I don't, I didn't know that. And then they become like prominent figures in my mind as writers. Are you, how does that play into discovery for you? You know, I've discovered a few people on social media. So it, it, it happens too. You know, if, if I see a funny account and then I, I think it's great, I'll reach out to the writer and say like, hey, I'm an agent. Can we have a coffee? Do you have, do you have representation? If you don't, can we have coffee? I've done that a number of times, but not often. Like, you know, yeah, not often. But they don't have to be like a good storyteller and have a giant Twitter following is what I'm saying. <laughs> like, like they could be a recluse who's very charming. Oh, yeah. No. Social media is not a prerequisite to be a client by any means. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Oh. It's probably more impressive they didn't. Have, I mean, I'm always shocked by people that don't <laughs> have social media. So if someone doesn't have it, I, that impress, I'm already interested in the conversation. <laughs> so do you rep writers exclusively or do you rep directors, actors, other types of people as well? Yeah, I work with directors and writers, actors when they want to write and they're already at the agency. Yeah, we're across the board. It's actors sometimes make the best writers because they know how to win in a room. Nice. How many of you are there out there in the industry? Oh, like how? Like, <laughs> 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 like, I mean, obviously, like there's different agencies, but like Gersh is pretty high up there. I mean, like in terms of like your level and packaging agent, are there really quite a lot of you? I, I feel like that can't be. I think there's a lot more than there used to be. Yeah, I think there's a lot of great agents out there that like working hard for writers. I, yes, I think there's a fair amount. I don't think that there's a shortage of agents, but I could be wrong. <laughs> I think from like the, I don't know, from the film point of view, from like the indie unrepped filmmaker point of view, there's like never enough reps. I feel like it always feels like the pie and there's like only a certain amount of slices. But you sit in a different position where you're surrounded by your colleagues, right? And you're, you're, you're working with them on a regular basis. What is your, what is your day look like? How do you, how do you spend your day? This is, I feel, I'm so sorry. I feel like we're treating you like, like an animal okay. in the my zoo. My fiance has, my wife has all the same questions. She's like, what do you do all day? What is your job? You talk on the phone? How is that a job? <laughs> yeah, she's a dentist. So if anyone needs dental work, lagreendental.com. Awesome. <laughs> a little plug. <laughs> what do I do? I talk to people on the, I mean, I do what everyone does. I try to keep the barrage of emails at bay and try to keep up with emails. Other than that, you know, during the day, there isn't a ton of reading that happens. That's, you know, you're just keeping up with emails. You're talking to executives, you're sending out material for clients and you're chatting on the phone with clients and executives and producers and trying to find openings for them or you're having meetings. What else does my day look like? Yeah, that's, that's a lot of what I do. Now it's, it's also day. checking out the hummingbird feeder and talking to the squirrels. But um, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to get back in the office. I love, I mean, I'm sure you guys 
saw becoming the Ricardos recently, and I was what? Well, now you haven't seen it yet. It's really good. But their office, the inner office politics of the making of I Love Lucy, I found myself being jealous that they were like all hanging out in an office together. <laughs> they weren't even, they didn't even like each other that much. <laughs> but it was, it was, yeah, it was, it reminded, I felt jealous of the time people get to spend together in an office. So I'm looking forward to getting back into the office. So when you have a new client, like, is, is there ever a reality where like they'd have like the script that you'd be like, oh, this is going to be a great show. Let's go package it right away. Or do they need to put in like a couple seasons like in a writer's room to like kind of build up some credits, build up some, you know, credibility before they're able to be like packaged as like the lead writer, like on what could be the next show? Yeah. When you say new writer, do you mean new writer to me or like new writer in the industry? Because I get writers at every level. A new writer could be an EP person. Uh, Let's say new writer in the industry, like somebody who's like, you know, doesn't have a lot of experience. I mean, it would have to be, and I, this happens once or once a year, the best thing I've read all year or the best thing I've read in years. So when a writer without any credits hands me the best thing I've ever read, essentially, and there can only be one of those, then I want to get it out there really quick. Now, like anything, if I have 50 writers, one is the funniest, one is the 49th funniest. They're all really funny, but like there can be one, one is like the smartest writer and everyone else is really smart, but someone has to be like, has to have the best script at any given moment. So if this writer gives me the best thing I've ever written, then yes. And that's the reason that we don't read query letters and just blind submissions because it has to be the best thing I've read all year for me to really get excited about it. And the chance that this that anyone is going to write the best thing I've ever written. Pretty slim. But it happens. I a talent colleague asked me to read uh, an actor and I read like two pages and I was tired and I went to bed and the talent colleague followed up with me. And I said, I'm gonna give this another go. And I opened it back up and I was on page 70. Like a minute later it felt like and I was like, wow, this is the best thing I've ever read. And we took it out to producers and studios and we had four or five studios bidding on it. And it, yeah, it never got made. The writer got paid, but it was the best thing I had read in a really long time. And I got to call the producers in the studios that I, that hopefully trust my taste a little bit and said, this is the best thing I've read all year. Does that upset you that it wasn't made? Like, does that, is that part of the process, the anticipation of seeing the thing come to life? Or is it just helping the writer move along with their career? The latter. I think it used to bother me and then it happens enough times and <laughs> hear about how long feature stuff takes to get made that like mm. almost you'd rather like it go or not go and not be in limbo for 10 years that I sort of enjoy the fact that like, okay, it's moving on to the next thing. Yeah. And then, you know, let's just drill into that a little bit closer. So, you know, it doesn't get made, but does the writer, they get a nice payday and then does that really help them get to the next level in their career having gone through that experience? Or is it kind of like, Oh, they're back to the drawing board now that their show actually didn't get produced. It should absolutely help them. It, they should have made a uh, good impression on an exec- executives at the studios. They should have had a great experience writing with them. Hopefully, people around, hopefully, there was like an article or a press release and people know it was sold. And yeah, if it was a bidding war for it, like other studios should want their next project. It absolutely moves someone's career in the right direction. And by the way, it's a talking point. Like, all I'm, I need things to talk about you. Me just saying I like them or they're good writers, like that gets you like, you know, off the like your foot's barely just on the gas. I need like, hey, they just sold to X, Y, or Z and three other networks bid on it. Like, oh, 
Now we're at 60 and you have a great piece of material behind that. Yeah. We're ready to back to the future or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Love that. I call that it. It goes in the bio. That's what I call that. Like it goes in the bio. Can you tell us what TV you think is really well written right now? Like what is, what is really great TV for you at this moment? Oh, I mean, Euphoria this season, Sam continues to like blow my mind just in the things that he does with his directing and his storytelling. It's so impressive. My favorite line this season was from, and I feel like I'm going with the obvious choices, Succession though, where <laughs> Brian said, uh, America's gotten skinny on meth and yoga. And I thought, wow, what a, what, what a great line. Like writers really <laughs> crushed that one. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a ton of great TV out there. So, so you said, you mentioned you have like about 50 clients. Like how do you manage all those clients? And like, are all those clients all in writer's rooms working and doing their thing? Or are there some that you have to like be pushing to try to get them better placement? Like how does that work? I mean, in theory, when they're in writer's rooms and busy i shouldn't be working with them quite as much now there's shorter writers rooms these days but before someone would go in a writer's room and they're there all year and they generally in the first few seasons can't develop so they should be pretty busy and well taken care of and you want to check in on people and just let them know the lay of the land a little bit but generally you know everyone doesn't need something every week so it's not unmanageable at all but that said Uh, And for young writers, and I was actually telling a young writer this this morning, I can't take on more than one baby writer at a time. So a writer without credits needs the most work of any of my clients on my list. They they know nobody. They have no friends. They need everyone needs to be introduced to them. When I say their name, no one goes, oh, yeah, I love them. They'll go, I have no idea who those people are. So I can and I can't say, hey, I've got four great people you've never heard of that you should meet because you'll go four. That's two hours of reading. I'm not doing that. I'll, I'll, who's your one? So I can take one new writer at a time and I can't take another one until I get that, that one a job. And then oh, I'll start the process again. Does is that it, answer the question? I forgot the question. <laughs> yeah, pr- pretty much. I guess the, the quick follow up to that is like, is it, a, is the average time for a new, a new baby writer, as you call it, to get like a job 18 months or is that, or is there an average time or is it just, everything's different? No. Another writer that I rep got a job in, you know, two months, a month and a half, like six, I don't know, maybe it was six weeks. I knew when I met, met with him, I knew there was a, an opening and I got him into another writer that I signed recently, mid-level writer. I think it was, I asked her if I could start sending her out and two weeks later she had a job. So yeah. Nice. Is in term, this is my last question. I think I'll work just so you know. <laughs> oh, sure. Is this like the pinnacle for you? Is this like, is this the goal is the, is being an agent or is there something else after this where it's like studio executive or it's something else? Where are you in in the trajectory right now? I love my job. So I really enjoy being a writer and helping out writers. Now, the head agent once said to me, like, if someone offered me the president of a studio, would I turn that down? Of course not that, you know, but the dream, the job that I have right now is the job that I really am. And have you always worked only in TV? I think that that's what you said, right? So is there any desire to ever go into features or is it just like you just want to be in TV and this is where you thrive and this is where you belong? I mean, movies let you down time and time again. People finish a movie and go, eh, it was pretty good. <laughs> or eh, the trailer was better. You never finish an episode of The Good Wife and go... Oh man, this, and if you do say, oh man, this wasn't the best episode, you know what you have next week? Another episode. (laughs) 
I, I've always loved television. Television, and I'm a kid of the 90s. So TV was there for me. And my, the friends were people that I thought were my friends. The arguments I had with my parents were about getting home in time for the X-Files. And I hate when people say TV's good now. Like, no, TV's been good. Seinfeld, <laughs> Sopranos, X-Files, these shows are 30 years old. TV's been great for a while. ER, these shows are amazing. Cheers. <laughs> Sorry, I have cheers. to mention cheers at every opportunity. <laughs> so, <laughs> cheers. I love cheers. So I've always loved television and I always felt like I was excited for movies. And I, and I also believe that TV shifts the zeitgeist of America in a way that movies don't. No one goes to see Brokeback Mountain if they don't feel a certain way about two guys kissing. But you will watch Modern Family or watch whatever's on after Modern Family and then change hearts as cheesy as that is. Okay, here's my last question. Like, let's say you have somebody who is a filmmaker, like, you know, in the future world and they want to transition to television. Like, is that something that you encounter a lot? And like, if you do, like, how do you work with that writer to get them ready to be, you know, working in television? I mean, it's all about a great pitch. It's all about a great story that you want to tell and why you want to tell it and why it needs to be told now. It's kind of the same thing. It's just a different medium. And they're becoming more and more similar as we've seen. But I guess it's also about what else I like is since TV is about characters, we get to spend in a successful show hundreds of hours with these characters. Feature people get two hours. Now it's not a competition, it. Jeff. It's see, let's let's calm it down now. Wait I do. Then. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, by the way, I do take out clients' features. I've gotten features set up. Like it's certainly something I do, and I read a funny feature, and of course I'm going to send it to my friends. And my friends are movie producers, just the way they're TV producers, and a lot a lot of the producers do both. So, but if I have a choice in where I want to spend my time and what I want to watch, I mean, tonight we'll probably watch a movie. But in general, like TVs are my passions always. Okay, so whether it's a new writer or a TV, a film person coming to TV for the first time, a baby writer, whatever it is that we want to call it, what do you encourage them to have in terms of a portfolio? Like what is what are the staples of a portfolio that you need to see? Oh, that's a good question. I want one great piece of material. Like I often joke that when you go to see Billy Joel, what do you want to hear? The hits. Like if my writers that I've rep for 10 or 12 years, the sample that got them like their first and second job is often the sample I still use because it's the hits. It's like the tried and true. Do I want them to update it from time to time? Do I want a bunch of like, you know, Trump references? Of course I don't. I never want the Trump references. <laughs> it, it depends. If they're in comedy, I want something hysterical. If they're in drama, I might need a few different types of drama samples. If they want to do genre or sci-fi or soap, like I do need those to be a little more specific. But uh, yeah, but great writing is great writing. So, But you don't need like 10 scripts and five of them are X and three of them are Y. You just need a good sample that shows that they're a good writer. Correct. Okay, amazing. And by the way, uh, you do have to freshen up the material and you do, you know, people do want to read what's next and what's new. So yeah, constantly doing, making, writing new material. The writers that I might sign that I met with today, I read one script of theirs. They're a new team. They have one sample together. It was excellent. I don't need two more samples from that. And, and is the sample a pilot or like, what is the sample? It's a pilot. So right now, writing an original pilot is way more in vogue than writing a spec of an existing show. I would not recommend today anyone write a spec of it, unless there's a big caveat to this. You're applying to one of the programs at one of the studios or networks where you need specs of their shows. Go to the websites, read the rules. Those are actually the awards 
that agents do look at mm. if they're in a writer's program at Warner Brothers or Fox or NBC or ABC. Those programs are well, very well regarded. The process they put the young writers through is very impressive. We just interviewed them. So I think your oh, cool. episode Perfect. will come out around the same time as their episode. <laughs> yeah, I hope they said exactly. good things about me, too. Of course. Of course. <laughs> So my question is was similar to Liz's question, so I'm going to ask kind of a slightly different version of it. But like, if you have like a director who, or, or writer-director who just like did a, a feature that did really well, and they're like, you know, had lots of success with it, like in the market, like, and they want to go into TV, like, is that person like someone that you would be able to get a job either as in a writer's room or trying to get packaged, you know, with a TV show? Absolutely. Or do they need... Okay, the cool. Heat, the heat of a movie that people like or something that I can show that people are impressed by, that's the heat. Like, that's enough. Yeah, I would love to see great material that is shot and someone that has something great behind it that they want to take out. Yes. But then they have to have like the pilot along with that, that they want made, right? Like it can't just be like the material and then we'll find something for them. Right. I wouldn't say it has to be that way. I I think it depends. Okay. Nice. Awesome. So I think we're in our final questions and I was looking at our final questions and I was like, a lot of these do not apply for this conversation. So I think we might have to improvise a few and so I'm going to attempt to improvise with this one. Is this the speed round? This is le- this is. is the opposite. It's like the points slow are, round. Are double? No. <laughs> oh, they're worth <laughs> half. <laughs> this is half Jeopardy. Okay, go. I got my hand on the buzzer. Okay. <laughs> What's the best advice you've given to a writer with regard to their craft? I'm going to go a little earlier in that question and say, what's the best advice I can give someone who wants to be a writer who's like in college and just about to graduate? Go work at an agency for a TV lit agent. The assistant positions are being turned over at least once a year. Like there's a, I don't know if it's a hundred percent retention or if that means zero percent retention. (laughs) I get confused by that. It's, It's one or the other, but they always need assistance and you will read a ton on the desk. You will get to see behind the curtain. You will get to know the names of the players and you will get to see how shows are really made. And then that agent will probably rep you after the year. So you've like jumped three steps. And when I started at WMA, then the reason I got to move quickly is because in the assistant pool was because all the assistants on TV lit desks wanted to be TV writers. They did not want to be agents. On the feature desks, they all wanted to be agents and they sat there for three years. On the TV lit desks, they left after a year to go be a writer. And all the writers that I started with or the assistants that wanted to be writers are now all successful writers. Like 100% of them, I'm pretty sure, are successful writers. None of them wanted to be agents. So it worked out well for me and worked out great for them. What's the best, the worst advice you could give a writer? Oh, I don't think I'd give the worst advice. What would be the worst thing that they could do? Or I don't know. Or that someone could tell a a client of yours. I mean, I think, you know, you want to believe in your material, but you also have to, I think you have to like know where you are in the process. Like if I have a great script and I'm an unknown writer, I want to think like this script will open doors for me. Not like this is the script that's going to win the Oscar. Maybe I'm like a hair jaded but I think that you want to like be appropriately optimistic. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you come in too cocky and too, too headstrong, then that could turn people off basically what you're saying. I I think, but that also just might be me. Other Mm -hmm. people might hear like, I'm going to run this town with this script. So make way, get out of my way, get on board, get out. (laughs) 
people might love that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Do you have a goal with regard to your career, your life, your specific client base? Is there something you're trying to achieve with your work? More shows, more clients with more shows on the air. Yeah. And final question, is making TV hard? <laughs> Ooh. Yes. Is that a yes or no? You, you can elaborate fun. as you free. <laughs> I mean, writers that get to hang out in rooms and create characters and tell stories that like change people's lives. That's such an amazing responsibility, power and opportunity. And I, I'm, I'm jealous and also grateful that I get to help. Yeah. Thank you. You're safe. You did it. We filled up 46 minutes with you. Perfect. You didn't even think it could happen. Wow. I only thought I had like three minutes of info. <laughs> Where, where should people go to, to find out more about you? And oh, I have an Instagram. It's hashtag Jeff G. They're welcome to follow me on Instagram. Hashtag Jeff G. It's often, you know, a lot of wedding stuff recently, but, <laughs> uh, which I produced myself the entire wedding. Well done. So you can go check nice. that out. I don't know. There'll be Burning Man pictures up later. Uh, you know. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, wait, we should ask for something before you go. We should put you on the spot and ask you about your client, Eric Toms, who is our producer of our podcast. Would you like to just say anything about Eric for this public forum to hear? Oh, everyone knows he's a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> Eric's great. Close friend and very happy for him the success. He is wonderful. Liz, what do you remember from our conversation with Jeff? Remember, it was really efficient. Like we usually put together an outline of like, I don't know. Eight to ten questions. Sometimes it's five if I'm lazy and I just only contribute like two. But like, you know, we are prepared and we go in with a lot of curiosity. And I remember it, we had like 20 minutes and we had like run out of questions or something. Like it was incredibly efficient. Jeff was very pleasant and I think he's probably great at his job. The thing that struck me the most, which maybe I wasn't going to plan, I wasn't planning on talking about it, but maybe I, it's coming out of me, whether I like it or not, <laughs> is when he talked about how he staffed at least his slate, you know, his client load with people. He compared it to putting together a dinner party and making sure everyone was really entertaining and that their personality and the way they engaged in the world refre reflected positively on his taste level, essentially, right? And that was really interesting because I never heard it said out loud <laughs> in a consensual podcasting relationship. I had never heard that said out loud. I have heard it, things like that behind closed doors. You know, personalities are incredibly important. But he admitted that that is what fuels the entertainment industry is this kind of personality game. And that was fascinating. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's very interesting because he did just blatantly out like say it. And I feel like you've I've heard that same thing before, especially about writers rooms. That it's like you want to be able to get along with with the person or the people for a long period of time. So like that's a big factor. But, you know, he made it sound like it was like almost the most important factor. Yeah. <laughs> it's like having the the materials is, is good. Like that's what gets you in the door. And like knowing that you have the skill is really important. But like really being somebody that they can hang out with and they want to spend time with for a long period of time, like a good party guest, it, it seemed like that was the most important thing, <laughs> which is really interesting. I mean, I don't know if it's that unsimilar in crewing. I mean, you know, like you, you definitely want to work with people that are fun to work with and like, you know, aren't going to be a pain in the ass. But I think like it's different. Like you wouldn't call it a party guest because you're not all hanging around like shooting the shit all the time. But like it's just somebody who 
you'll just get along with and like, you know, loves their job and, you know, is a pleasant human, you know? Yeah. So, I don't know. But yeah, I guess the thing that really struck me about Jeff was just like how much he was like all in on TV and it, it was almost like everything else that wasn't TV was like not as good. <laughs> like features, like who cares? You know, like, oh, they're not, they used to be the thing, but now not the thing anymore. TV's the thing now, you know? Which I guess is like great that he's like so into and so believes in it so much then that and the and the importance behind it you know and it kind of made me want to get into tv all these people that we've been talking to who are in tv makes me want to get into tv but i also don't want to be in a writer's room necessarily <laughs> either unless it's my show <laughs> but that's just because i'm a jerk <laughs> i don't know but yeah it, i don't know it was a really fun conversation i think there's a lot of really Really straightforward, great tips on like, if you are trying to get into TV writing, like these are the steps you take. If you don't know other writers, no other writers will seem to be like the what it boiled down to. And if like you are a writer, he's like, I was like, how do you like, well, the question was like, how do you find your clients or how does a writer find the agent that's going to like, you know, start the, start their career off? How do they get to someone like you basically? And he's like, well, if you're a writer, you must know other writers and those writers must have managers or agents. So talk to your writer friends. And it was like that simple. And I feel like the way he said it, like, like almost throwing salt over his shoulder, it was like, yeah, obviously talk to your friends. <laughs> and as you, you know, I don't know, as you get better, you should know more people who could maybe refer you potentially. It, I don't know. It's problematic. Like, I'm not saying he's problematic because he's part of that, but like, okay, so I have some friends in art department and, and then, you know, my husband's a post coordinator. And you're like, my husband will like apply for jobs, right? Like he'll see postings on Mandy and SEA job board or whatever, and he'll apply, but he never gets those jobs. He only gets the jobs that people are like, people we've worked with before will email him informally and be like, hey, by the way, are you free? Right? And the same, my friend who works in our department said the same thing. It's like, it's all about who you know. And I know this is very basic Hollywood bullshit stuff, but I'm just saying like, that whole system of who you know is the problem because it's not in any way based on merit. It's based on access and resources and relationships, you know, but it's exhausting to do a blind submission process of like thousands of applications for these positions and to read thousands of scripts. So I'm just saying it's the, it's the most efficient way for a rep to find a writer is to work through relationships because they're pre-vetted. But it is not the way that pushes art forward and pushes storytelling forward. It's just the most time, it's the most economic way of doing it. Yeah. I, I see that side of it. Like, you know, that doesn't necessarily favor the best creators or the best artists. Right. But on the other hand, like if you are the best creative and the best artist, like you should... Are you going to say know- the cream rises to the top? Because I'm about to... No. Okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. But... You, but- because that's bullshit. Like you can't just Thank write you. a great script and then like expect it to be good and like right. and like win awards or or get found by somebody. Like that's just not how it works. No. You have to have the connections. But what I'm trying to say is like I walked into this industry, you know, with no connections whatsoever. Like I didn't know anybody. I started it as a PA who knew no one, uh, knew nothing, and then I was able to you know make a, a career working on set, you know, for for ten years and. Just like, you know, your friends, like I never got jobs, you know, besides entry level PA stuff uh, as a, on Craigslist, I never got any other jobs through that. Like it was always like random phone calls, like, oh, so-and-so referred you to me. Can, are you available? Like, oh, do you have a, a reel you can send over? 
You know, that was like all my work. And I, I lived off that for years, you know? So it definitely works. It's just, you know, I think in order to get to that level, you have to do a lot of that thing. So like you have to like write a lot of scripts, commiserate with other writers, you know, get to know other writers. And I think if you are able to do that, then I think you might have an opportunity. But it's obviously, you know, there's, there's not, there's two, there's more writers than there are slots at agencies with and managers, right? So it's like, you're, it does not a guarantee. But like, I think if you kind of listen to what Jeff is saying and you follow those, th- that kind of advice, like you're going to have a better shot than if you didn't listen to his advice. Yes, you, you know have to saying? play. He's helping you play into the system. And I'd also want to acknowledge my own foibles in that that is exactly how I grew up as I ask my inner circle for recommendations. <laughs> right. But then it's like, what are your blind spots? Like, why have like three close friends? You know what I mean? Like that, they're, mm-hmm. they're not representative samples of different demographics and society, you know, like mm. they're probably three white women in their mid thirties. Mm-hmm. And that's problematic too, is that I'm not getting outside perspectives when I get recommendations. Right. So yeah, it's just funny how like I'm recognizing we are all part of the problem, but at least Jeff is identifying how you can traverse this problematic system and kind of yeah. hack it. I don't think he really, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't know if I should say this, but like, it doesn't seem like he feels it's a problem. Yeah, he might not think it's a problem. I might not put that on his perspective. No, but I feel like, you know, in your position and our position as, as indie filmmakers trying to make a career at this, it is a problem. Yeah. But, you know, it's a problem that you can work around. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think maybe is a, it's like, maybe you can, maybe you can, maybe. But, you, but you could try, you know. <laughs> well, what is also worth talking about is that we have an article this week from Filmmaker Magazine, and it's about Hank Corwin, the editor of Don't Look Up, and it's an interview with him by Daniel Egan. And it's funny because the headline of the article references like one one hundredth of the article's contents. So the headline of the article is, I find that God is in the mistakes. I'm finding moments where the actors don't know the camera's on them. Hank Corwin on editing Don't Look Up. But actually, the majority of the interview does not talk about capturing using the footage of actors when they don't know they're being filmed. I was prepared for the entire article to be about that. Arik, what were your takeaways from this article? Yeah, I thought the whole article was going to be about that, too. Yeah. But it just seems like a really in-depth conversation about like how he edited this movie specifically. Yeah. I was all ready to talk about, you know, actors... You know, shots using shots of actors while they're not, you know, when they don't, when they're not on, right? When they like, yeah. where you after you call cut, right? And I actually wanted to use this as an opportunity to ask you if you've ever done this. Like, have you ever talked to your DP and say, I'm going to call cut, but don't actually cut, like keep the camera rolling, you know, for a little while longer? Oh my God. I have tried. I have tried so many times. <laughs> really? And <laughs> the DP is like, just do not get it. Like, they, it's, and I think it's because. It's funny. My Ida DP, who once made this side comment where it's like, I was like, was that, was that take good? And she was like, yes, it was. It was great, but it doesn't matter. You're going to use the worst one. There's like this perfectionism on behalf of DPs where like they, like they, they want the control over the image. And I don't think they want to just press record, you know, and just capture things roughly. They want to compose, or at least the DPs I've worked with, really want time to compose and craft the image. So none of them would acquiesce when I was like, just record, just press record right now. Because they didn't have the light that they wanted right there. And they didn't have the composition they needed. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That is my DP too. Like he he will he will not shoot until he is ready. Like he, yeah. it's like it's got to be ready. It's got to be perfect. He did, he didn't even like shooting on rehearsal, which is like you know basically where we had to live. You know on our movie because we were so tight. And and I kind of feel like sometimes you get like magic when they're when the actors are like <sighs> loosening up. You know, but yeah, what I was thinking more is like at the end. Like when you call cut, call cut, like, you know, do they ever keep rolling or do they just cut when you say cut, you know? Uh, yeah, sometimes. And I, I was amazing. Last short, Sam, my editor, he found and stole certain moments, not necessarily from past the, you know, past yelling cut, but like we'd punch in on a shot and turn it into a single. I mean, you know, like the tricks of the trade or steal something when... It was in between lines of dialogue for a reaction shot that was not specifically for that moment. Yes, we've gone, we've, you know, we've kept recording after a cut, but it was, it wasn't to the length where we got like minutes and minutes of footage, right? It was only like right. 10 seconds of extra footage. I think that's that 10 seconds though, sometimes that you can find something in that 10 seconds, right? Yeah. That's like special. And it, it, it's the point where, like, I think we had the conversation, my cinematographer and I, about continuing to roll after I call cut. And like, we did that a few times. But then other times, I would call cut and he just wouldn't cut. He'd just keep going. You know, he'd yes. just keep shooting and he would find little moments. Yes. Like, he would, like, pan, like, like, when the actor would break, he'd pan down to their hands or over to a prop or whatever. And, like, you know, all these little tiny little moments he would grab when he saw the opportunity. And uh, those moments, a lot of them made it into the movie. And so that, now, like, next time we work together, I'm be like, dude, just roll, fucking roll. I love that. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> I want to acknowledge, though, that, like, I think this is something I want to try in my next shoot, which is, it is about consent, though. Like, there should be an agreement with the actor, which is, like, the minute you walk onto set, we may roll on you. Because I think there's mm. also something really creepy and kind of yucky of being, like, we're pressing record when you don't know we're pressing record. You know, it's like the social contract is you say action and the actor knows and they're acquiescing to be on camera in that way. But if you're not having that back and forth, giving them some sort of heads up, I think is important to do. So maybe on the next project, there's just like an agreement that says like, we may record at any time once you're on the yeah. set. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I, cause, so I don't know if you remember this, but Werner Herzog did a movie called Rescue Dawn. With uh, I haven't Christian seen Bale, it, but yes, I know of it. And then there was like a whole scene where he's like having a cigarette with one of the the other characters in the movie, and it's like totally not a scene. He was just like having a cigarette with an actor, like on down moment, and they shot it with a long lens from across <laughs> the set, and just did it documentary style, and didn't tell anybody. That's like fucking Werner Herzog, man, just going nuts. And so I bet you that he didn't like tell the actors like we may be rolling on you at any time. You cannot <laughs> expect when we will be rolling the camera. I bet he just did it, you know. Which is, I think, cruel and cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's both. It's, it's cruel. Both. And cool. Yeah. Well, that's a good point, though. I think that's like the more like you know modern way and like respectful way to be like. Yeah. yeah. Have that little contract of like just knowing that yeah, when you walk on set, we may decide to roll whenever and so yeah. just be you know whatever that's just might happen and don't need to look out for it don't need to be aware just just so you know we could be rolling yeah all right i've been really really excited to get to this because we got this email like 
three weeks ago or something, and we've had two episodes where we haven't had time for segments because we've had these bonus guests, these wonderful bonus guests on the show. So now we finally, finally get to read this question from Simon L. Smith, who's a wonderful Patreon patron, by the way. But Simon writes, Liz and Ulrich, I do finally have a question for you. How would you spend $250, 500 or $1,000 for the following short film? And he goes on in detail. I am 95% done with the short film script set in only two locations, my house and the local public library. I think I can get the library for free, but I am willing to steal the shots if needed. I will shoot on my son's Canon EOS T7. Some shots may be on a Samsung S21 Ultra. I have seven actors lined up, but only need them all together for one scene. The actors will all wear their current clothes with one exception. I made to need to purchase one sexy outfit for one actor. <laughs> there is some dialogue, but minimal dialogue, and I currently own two Rode microphones. My son and I will do all the special effects on our, our current laptops. Minimal, but I think weird science creation scene. Also, based on the questions you, you based on questions you ask on the podcast, I am making this for me based on a silly paranoid thought my wife had about cloning. I am not against submitting it to some short film festivals, but I'm not making it to submit to short film festivals. My son and I plan to make more. My daughter and I have plans to make more. And my wife and I talk about what it would, would take to do some production together with me as a creative and her as a producer. No, I have no fantasy that this one thing makes any of that come true. Let me know if you have any follow-up questions. Also, I understand if this is not podcast-worthy, but I would appreciate your thoughts. So, Liz, this is a crazy email. What do you think? I mean, okay, I don't love my answer, but this is the first answer I thought of, which is, Take whatever money and spend it on production sound. And that's the only, like, if you only have two fifty five hundred, a thousand dollars and it's weird that there's three options, I don't quite understand why we're getting to choose between three options. <laughs> that's a minimal amount. And I would say it's going to be, this sounds, Simon, you're wonderful, but this sounds like a, an exercise. It doesn't sound like a serious short film, right? He kind of alludes to that. It's for fun. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's to stretch his creative muscles, but it will catapult the film to a slightly higher quality bracket if there's good production sounds. And that seems like the one thing, if you could avoid worrying about something and focus on the creative, pay a good sound person is what I think Simon should do. That's smart advice. Yeah. I, so I wonder, like... There's so much, so many ways to tackle this. Like, it's like, oh, you could, if you had a thousand dollars, you could pay all your actors a little bit of something, you know, like, like pay them for their time. Uh, you could feed them well, which you definitely should do no matter what. But yeah, I think if I had a thousand dollars for this kind of short film, I'm just going to go with the largest amount of money because, hey, why not? <laughs> yeah. If I didn't know someone who I thought could record good audio and like who I actually knew would take it seriously and we could just give them all the equipment that I owned, like, it has to be a recorder and the microphones. It couldn't just be the microphones plugged into the camera. It has to be microphones into a recorder. So if you have a recorder you didn't mention, then yeah, I think you're good. Just make sure you trust, you have someone you trust to, to take care of it for you. If you do not have that person, then I would agree with Liz. I would spend whatever the money you need. I don't know what market you're in, but depending on the market, it's probably somewhere between 400 and, you know, 800 bucks to get a sound person out to, to do your sound for the day. And if they're nice and, you know, you can convince them, maybe they'll do it for 400 or maybe less. But, you know, I think like if in a perfect world, you spend 500 or less on the sound person and then you take the other 500 bucks, good food for everybody. Yeah. And then you save some money for film festival submissions because you're going to need to do that. If It sounds like that's what you want to do. 
And then also, if you can afford someone to do color and, and sound mixing for you in the end, that's going to make a big difference too. So I would put the money in those places. And then also props and wardrobe. You said like, I think of a thing of like, like weird science creation movie or whatever. So like, you probably have to have some other onset props to go with that. So I would, you know, put that money towards the onset props to make sure that everything is looking as good as possible because your camera, <laughs> while not like the nicest camera in the world, is good enough. It's going to look good. Like it's going to look fine with what you have. Oh, I might maybe rent a nice lens too. That'd be the go, yeah. just go on to borrowed lenses or something like rent a, a 50 buck, you know, 2.8, you know, lens for your camera. That's going to make it look more cinematic unless you already have a really nice lens. But yeah, we get like a nice cinema lens to go with your camera for the weekend. But yeah, I don't know. I think you can do a lot with a thousand dollars, you know? The only other thing I was thinking of is I'm not, I, you know, Simon didn't tell us everything, but having a rehearsal and paying for like a true rehearsal date where Simon is pretending to shoot it in advance of the actual shoot will make the shoot date more efficient, will make his communication when he's on set, when it's real, a lot better. And maybe that's when you can also additionally pay for some really yummy food for your actors and treat them well. Yeah. You don't really have enough money to pay your actors, really, unfortunately, because even if you paid them 50 bucks each for yeah. one day, or if that's already like 350 bucks, right. and it's like 50 bucks, is anyone really going to be excited about 50 bucks? Maybe. But I think they'd rather just come and help you out. And if you feed them well and treat them well and like give them time to do their work, then they're yeah. probably going to appreciate that more, you know? Yeah. Wow. I don't know. I think that's helpful. I don't know. If, if Simon, if you have follow-up questions or... You know, what, you can email us and we don't have to do it on the show again. We can just tell you directly. But, but yeah, good luck. I hope this goes well. I really do feel like somewhere around $1,000 for a short film is like the right amount of money to be spending on a short film. Somewhere between 1000 and 2000 if you can do it with favors and whatever. I know short films, if you want them to look good, actually cost way more. I'm, you know, almost all my shorts have cost five to six times that. Not all. Three. No, two. Two of them cost that much. No, no, three. No, no, two. Yeah, three, I guess. Three, sorry. Three did. The other ones were all sub four. So, anyways. Especially in COVID times, your your budget's going to go into five figures quite easily. Yeah, I don't know what this COVID times is anymore. Like, what, what's happening now? Are, are we still locked? Like, you have to follow the protocols? How long is that going to last? Are we going to be past this in a year? I don't know. We'll see. It's not going to go away. It's not you don't think it's ever going to go away? No, but people are just going to take it less seriously. But yeah, I don't That's think it's so ever going to go away. Well, they're like not having us like, you know, they're, they're changing the mask rules and in, in at least in the Bay Area, like they're, yeah. they're like loosening up on mask rules. So I don't know if, what it's like in Los Angeles, but it seems Not like it's going, yet. you know. Soon. Okay. Soon for us. Cool. Awesome. But speaking <laughs> of communication and, and Simon's question came to us via email. If any of y'all have a question, comment or suggestion, you can send it to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Check out our sponsors, the International Screenwriters Association, as well as Jambox.io. The ISA, International Screenwriters Association, is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer. Head on over to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. We want to thank Jeff Greenberg for coming on the show, to our amazing producer, Eric Toms, for making the suggestion. 
Thanks to our editor, Jeff Freimut, who's just an astoundingly wonderful editor and, and, and I think a good human being. So far, he's just been wonderful for doing the editing. Thanks, everyone, for listening and talk to all y'all next week. Also, make sure to check out Jambox.io, a new royalty-free music and SFX company with a sound effects, music, whatever. Hold on. (laughs) 